Well, good morning. And happy Mother's Day, everybody. Welcome to one of the most stressful Sundays of the year for me. Feels like no matter what I do, it's not the right thing on this Sunday. Uh, but that's okay, because we're going to celebrate anyways, and we're excited that you're here. We're excited. We do celebrate um, all of you that are mothers biologically, and all of you that are mothers by choice, who have stepped into the lives of young people and people in our community to, to help them along. I was talking to Jen out there in the hallway earlier, and if I were to recognize all of the people who I have considered my mothers, and then we could take it a step further, those who consider themselves my mother, uh, the number would be vast. And so we do say happy Mother's Day. We are excited and we, we bless you, we honor you, and we thank you. So this morning we do, you see the flowers up here and they are robust today, right? And so we are not going to bring them to you where you sit today because obviously, right? So we're going to let you observe them up here, and then the three of you that, that win these wonderful things can duke it out later. So stay in your seats when the service dismisses, because we're going to see who gets what flower group. All right? So we're going to do three this morning, and we in the office spent a great deal of time. Uh, uh, there was much much consternation and much debate and much back and forth about what we were going to do for these three this, this week. So it was a group decision. So when you're angry because it wasn't you, send your complaints to the office, okay? So the first one that we're going to do is the oldest mother. This is the one Sunday a year where I'm allowed to ask who the oldest mother is. So the oldest mother in the, in the sanctuary today I didn't think of to ask where I should start. Joyce, where should I start age-wise? Okay, let's start 80. If you're 80, raise your hand. I'm not going to make you stand up. Someone in here is 80. I, can, I see one. I see two. Okay. I see three. Is there more than three? Am I missing one? Okay. So we'll, we'll do an increment. Do we have anyone 85? 85. I got one. I've got two. Am I missing one? Ben, go ahead and stand and look for me, bud. Make sure I'm not missing anybody. This is Ben Yee. We've got one there and one here. Okay, we'll go by one year. 86. No one's 86. Are you 86? 85? 85? You both win. <laughs> Congratulations. So you both get flowers this morning because that's a win for me, all right? So we're going to call that good. Yay! Thank you, Jesus. So we have Carol McBride, and uh, she's 85, right? Okay. And Shelva back there in the back, and she's 85 as well. So congratulations, and we, we honor you. We thank you. So you all can pick which flowers you want afterwards, and uh, we, we'll leave that decision-making to you. All right. So then we've got one more, and I'm going to do this one because this is the one I like. Uh, we got a lot of new babies in the house here recently. So if you've had a baby within the last year, I, can I ask you to stand? Is that okay? Okay, just raise your hand. Like, I need to see it. We got two right there. And a three up there. Okay. Three. Do I have four? Do I have four? Okay. We got three. All right, who had their baby most recently, the youngest baby? 
Caitlin, how old is, is your precious cherub? Seven weeks. I got seven weeks. How old is your precious cherub? Miss Parker? Four months. Man, that's basically a kid. <laughs> Anna and Ben Marks are losing their mind back there going, three weeks, three weeks. <laughs> so the Marks baby is three weeks old. So congratulations. Anna. Anna, you can come pick your flowers for your sister after the, for the, after the service. Like Anna was so excited. <laughs> it was great. Congratulations. Well, again, we do, we do uh, honor you, mothers. We thank you so much for all of you who, who have children and for those of you who have taken children under your wings and continue to, to guide us and to love us and to care for us. So we thank you. And there are flowers out in the foyer, the exit as you go. And so you are welcome to those, whether you are a, a biological mother or a mother by choice. They are there for you, and so make sure you get one on your way out, and God bless you, and we thank you. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to the Word. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, we thank you for the truth of your Word and all it contains for us. Lord, we thank you that, that no Word of God comes back empty or void. I think that means, Lord, that any Word of God that we read has meaning for us. So God, today, as we read your word, Lord, we pray that you would help us to discern the truth therein. We pray that you'd help us to discern the truth and know what you have for us today. Speak to us clearly in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, there are a lot of fashion rules out there, and fashion rules are often extremely fickle, right? A lot of times we don't know where they came from. We just know when we've broken them because someone tells us we have broken said fashion rules. I will tell you without pointing any fingers that there are many a fashion police in this very room. And God bless you. My own personal life, I've been informed both early and often when I have broken some arbitrary rule of style and class. Which by this point, I think you would know that that generally was intentional. But a lot of times I'm not aware of the rule, and maybe you're not either. But the rules still exist. Like those rules include one rule as I was growing up that, that was that men were not supposed to wear pink, right? That was one of the rules that, that you weren't supposed to, tough guys didn't wear pink. And so if you wore pink, you were somehow less manly, you weren't supposed to wear pink if you were a man's man. Second thing, uh, sneakers should not be worn in the pulpit. We all know where I stand on that one, in my sneakers, in the pulpit. But one particular rule that I was thinking about this week, a, a classic rule, is you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day or before Memorial Day. Right? That's, that's a big no-no. People are like, mm-mm, no, you're not supposed to do that. That's rule. Have you, have you ever thought about where does that rule come from? Why, why is that even a rule? Maybe you haven't, but for those that have been around the church for very long at all, know that I jumped down those rabbit trails. I've got to know, why do we do this thing? What is, what is the etymology? How did that develop over time? So I did a little exploring this week on Yield Internet. The rule dates back 
to the late 1800s or early 1900s. During that time, people would wear white during the summer months because it was usually a lighter fabric. And by that, I don't mean color-wise. That, of course, was true, but it was airier, right? The color with fabric tends to be thicker, a little bit weightier. But not only is it, is it heavier, the fabric tends to hold in heat better. And remember, at that time, even informal dress was relatively formal with layers, So during the warmer months or when one went on holiday, one would wear white, light clothing. But that white clothing wouldn't work so well in the days before concrete streets with the dust of of the roads kicking up. And particularly as the wetter months set in and that dust began turning into mud. So when you moved into the winter months or you came back home from vacation, you didn't want to wear your white clothes because they were more suspect to, subject to getting dirty, to carrying that dirt around. And that, that was just unacceptable. So the, those with means would buy multiple wardrobes. They would have different clothes for seasonal times of year so they could wear colors during the wet months in order that they wouldn't show as much dirt. And then they could put aside their, their white clothes for those vacation or warmer months. Well, that makes sense, right? That one would avoid wearing white when it would be more prone to getting dirty but over time, as people began to afford more clothes and it became easily, more easily accessible, the upper class society decided that they would still maintain their habits of wearing only white during the warmer months and colors during the off months. No longer was it, though, just about keeping one from getting dirty, especially as air conditioning began to come in. Now it became a means of knowing who was really rich. Who was rich and who was just pretending? So the whole point of the rule was for identifying who was upper class, who was upper crust, and who was lower class. Now, I wear my trailer park on my sleeve, right? But that was the rule. It was, it, so when we say that we're making a fashion statement, our fashion often does make statements, but sometimes statements that We didn't even know we were making or the way that we were making it. You might be thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with Esther? Well, in the book of Esther, we're going to see that Mordecai this week makes a fashion statement. And in that statement, he is calling out not just to the community, but to God himself. And he is speaking loudly and he is speaking clearly. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4 states this. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. 
And we might translate that. She was horrified. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then he, she summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their, their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her own people. Hathak went back and reported to, reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends his gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your fa father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So we see it right there at the beginning, right? Right away at the beginning, we know that the order has been given that, that Mordecai has already offended Haman and that Haman has gone to the king and offered an obscene amount of money, right? Two-thirds of the national budget he was willing to pay for for the privilege of annihilating the Jews. He's gonna get rid of them all. And the word comes back to Mordecai that this has happened, that the deal is done, the agreement has been made, the order has been sent out, the legislation has been written, that the, the ending is all but certain. And what will we do? And so Mordecai tears his clothing and makes his fashion statement. He puts on sackcloth and ash. Now remember, we've talked about this before, that one of the strange things about Esther is that it's the only book in the Bible where God is left out, essentially, that, that God is not explicitly mentioned, that the name of God, and that, that any spiritual action that praying or preaching or teaching or prophecy isn't explicitly laid out. But as we've learned, God is constantly moving and working throughout the book of Esther, and there are evidences that the people of God are actually in relationship with God in the midst of it all. And this is one of those clear examples, and this is one of those fashion statements that spoke back then but should speak to us today. Because notice what the first thing functionally Mordecai does when the circumstance turns sour. When everything goes south 
and difficulty is on the horizon, the first thing that Mordecai does is he goes to God for help. The first response for us in any situation should be to turn to the Lord. The first response for us in any situation should be to turn to the Lord. And that's what we see here with Mordecai. Mordecai is making again a loud and clear statement with his sackcloth and his ashes. It was a means of of displaying the internal hurt and anxiety he is experiencing outwardly. He's expressing his feelings. And the truth is he's doing it not just what he's wearing, but he's, he's wailing, he's fasting. Like everybody knows that Mordecai is upset. Now clearly, Mordecai is sending a message to everybody in Susa, right? Everybody in Susa would have known. And why do we say that? Well, he takes himself right up to the king's gate, which we'll look at again here in a second. But he comes up to the king's gate and sets up in this outfit. A gate where, where important business would be done, where people had to pass. Now, he, he wants those people, these powerful leaders, to see what's going on, to understand that something is wrong. But, but it goes beyond that because his hope clearly is that the message would get beyond that borderline where he was allowed to go and that the message would get ultimately to Esther. That Esther would see that something was wrong and hopefully would inquire and act appropriately. For whatever reason, Mordecai still does not have immediate access to Esther. But might I submit to you that the message is not just terrestrial. What I mean by that is that the message is not just meant for people. The message is ultimately and above all an SOS to the good Lord himself. It is functionally a form of prayer. Wearing sackcloth and ashes, along with fasting, weeping, and wailing, which is exactly what it says in the text, were a prescribed means of turning to God and crying out for help. Again, it's not a stretch to say that Mordecai, in his physical actions, is praying. God help me. Lord, see our suffering, see our struggle, and act accordingly. Whatever the circumstances and whatever the reason, when we face struggles in our lives, our first and best option is always to turn to the Lord, to go to God in prayer, to ask for his assistance, to ask for his direction. Now, literary echoes are a concept in in Bible scholarship. And what a literary echo is, is a passage in another part of the Bible that that references a a quotation from a well-known, important passage that was written previously. We, We see them in a variety of places. They are littered throughout the works of Paul in the New Testament. We we constantly see Jesus specifically going back to prophecies and texts that refer to the Messiah and what the Messiah would do and how the Messiah would function. And we see them all throughout the New Testament. We often overlook them, though, when they are Old Testament references to other Old Testament passages. But we see one, a very important one, that gives us some context and, and some explanation as to what exactly is going on with Mordecai here. And that literary echo is with fasting, weeping, and wailing. 
with fasting, weeping, and wailing. It's something that as we read through, through chapter 4 of Esther, we would look over. It, it appears at the end of verse 3. It says that the, the king edicts came out and there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Again, three words, four words that we would easily go over, but it would have been for a Jewish reader at that time a very clear quotation from Joel chapter 2. In the book of Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12, it says this, Even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Now the, the expectation of the author of Esther, as, as he's being a little low-key, probably because of the cultural climate at the time, is that his readers would make the connection, that they would know what he was talking about. And as we look at Joel chapter 2, we can understand how it contextually fits in with what's going on in Esther chapter 4. The, the implication is that, that calamity is coming for whatever reason. And obviously the people are in exile, so they, they've already wronged the Lord. They, they've been under the wrath of God for some time. And, and this new peace is developing, ironically, because Mordecai was faithful, and Mordecai is turning to the Lord and saying, God, please, please stop the hurt. God, please step in on our behalf. Please act for our ultimate well-being and benefit. Intervene for us. Joel 2 provides instructions from God himself on how to repent, to turn to God, and request rescue. One can see how that would, would, would nicely infuse with what is going on here in Esther chapter 4. Again, we could look at Joel and we don't see the word prayer appear explicitly. But the elements that are inherent in the text were a form of prayer. Fasting, weeping, and wailing. Fasting in particular, though, is a spiritual discipline and has been. Even today, fasting is considered a spiritual discipline. It's one of those things that we in America don't do very often, but, but that historically has an important, been a, an important part of, of faith and practice. And, and the whole intent of it is to turn our attention to God and seek God's intervention and wisdom in a specific situation. If that is not prayer, I don't know what it is. To me, it is fairly clear that he is praying. The Revel Concise Bible Dictionary defines fasting like this. Individuals fasted when in the grip of some crisis or strong emotion. Public fasting was associated with national repentance. These fasts were typically accomplished 
by confession, and by earnest appeal to God in prayer. When fasting expressed true repentance and grief, God promised to respond with deliverance. By definition, repentance is a turning to God. In all of us, regardless of how right we might be getting it in our lives right now, need, need to adopt a posture of continual repentance. Continually reorienting ourselves to God. Continually being reminded of our need for the grace and the power and the presence of God in our lives. That is the point of prayer, is it not? I mean, if we look at the Bible, we understand that prayer, it, while it, it may be us going to God with our concerns and asking God to supply our needs and asking God to see what's going on in our lives, if we look at the Bible over and over again, prayer is a communication and a conversation between us and God. But the fact is that God already knows what we need, right? The Bible says that over and over again. We could spend all day just looking at texts that talk about that. So if God already knows what we need, who is prayer really for? Prayer is a discipline that is for our benefit, that, that ultimately reorients our attention and reminds us of what God is already doing, that God has not left us alone, that God has not abandoned us, that God is, is still moving, and to remind us and to keep us humble, to remind us that we need God's power and presence in our lives, no matter how good things are. I would actually submit to you that the better things are, the more we need prayer in that season. It's easy to get cocky when things are good and to say, you know what, God, you can just sit in the background right now. I got this right now. Homie's doing a good job. We may not say it that way, but it is how we act, isn't it? How many of us get busy when life is successful and things are good and we just, we forget to pray? But oh my goodness, when the floor drops out, when we come back to the quote-unquote real world. We're good about praying then, aren't we? Sometimes we don't even know what, we, what to say. Sometimes we, we might even be, we would say like Mordecai and, and the, the people in the text, all we've got is weeping and wailing. As Paul says in, in, in his epistle, it, it's our spirits just grown and the Holy Spirit by his grace translates for us All that to say, prayer is, is very clearly demonstrated in chapter 4, I would argue. It's a turning to God, asking for assistance, and trusting him, believing that he will act on our behalf. And, and, and what we see in this text is that we need to pray first, and we need to pray always. Mordecai and the Jews' first response is to go to God in prayer. And it's the right thing. It is the right thing to do. But as we've seen with Mordecai in chapter 3 and now again with chapter 4, doing the right thing doesn't always feel right. Doing the right thing doesn't always feel right. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Have you ever had a situation where you knew what you needed to do? You knew what you should do, but you didn't want to do it? 
You knew what you needed to say. You knew what was the right thing to say, but you didn't want to say it because you knew that it could go very wrong for you. Mordecai does the right thing in this text. But I'm going to argue that both physically and socially, it probably didn't feel right. Mordecai's actions made everybody uncomfortable. Reminds me of a time when I was again at Appalachian Bible College. Uh, We'll go back to that well one more time. But not too long after the rule that we mentioned last week was announced, the rule that, that men were not to have trendy or faddish hairstyles that, quote, call undue attention, I did a deep dive into the handbook. It was much like the, the you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day or before Memorial Day. I wanted to know, well, what other rules were there and why were they there? So I began looking, and lo and behold, as I looked through the handbook, I realized that there was no prohibition in the handbook against men wearing earrings to classes. So I figured I had a green light, right? But I also knew inherently that they weren't going to like it. If they didn't like blonde hair, they weren't going to like the metal in my head. But I wanted to make a statement. So I put in all five of my earrings at the time, and I marched myself to my theology class that morning and sat in the front row. The teacher of said class just happened to be the dean of students, who was a lover of rules and order and the servant staff. So I sat myself in the front row, and I waited for the prof to come in. And he came in, and he was, good morning, and all of a sudden he looked down and he stopped. He stepped down off the stage and he said, um, Mr. Myers, excuse me, um, but earrings are not allowed on men here at Appalachian Bible College. And I said, really? And he said, yes, sir, it's in the servant staff. To wit, I handed him a copy. <laughs> and he said, it's in there, I promise. And he flipped his way through it a couple of times closed it, put it down on my desk, and stepped back on the stage. And he taught the class that day. Not two hours after I left the class that day, I went to my mailbox, and in my mailbox was a little slip of paper that I still have at my house to this day, which indicated that men were to have no body piercings of any sort. My fashion statement, once again, Brought about change, albeit one I did not prefer. Mordecai is trying to make a positive change. He's not just trying to stir the pot. He is trying to bring attention to injustice. And he knows that much like me wearing earrings to class is going to make everybody uncomfortable, going to possibly get himself in trouble, but it's going to create the conversation. Now, sackcloth and ash... Just think about that. By definition, that's not going to be comfortable for Mordecai. Now, it's not going to be comfortable socially, right? Because this is not one of those outfits that one wears into polite company. 
It indicates emotion, and even now, we're kind of uncomfortable with that. We would prefer that we keep that inside and you deal with your emotions at home in private. But here, Mordecai is promoting and propagating his emotions and pushing them out for everyone to see, forcing them into everybody's face. But not only that, sackcloth and ash just doesn't sound real comfortable like to wear. By design, it was made out of rough skins. It was made out of goat hair or, or camel hair. And so it was very uncomfortable and would rub against the skin. And, and it made it so that the discomfort one felt externally matched the discomfort one felt internally. It's one of those things where I don't really love the message, but, but he knew what he was doing and it, it demonstrated humility on the part of the wearer. But where he wore them also intentionally made those who saw him uncomfortable. Showing up in his chosen attire in that particular place was a clear protest of the injustice being done against him and his people. Now we understand implicitly the reality of of wearing those clothing and doing a protest at the gate of the king. But what we miss is the reality of how important that location would have been. Gates were not just points of entry and exit throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when you read that someone took up their seat at the city gates or took up their seat at the palace gates, that is not just giving you a location of where the person decided he was going to rest for the day. Sitting at the gates indicates that that person had an official position and posting because it was at the gates where court cases were adjudicated. Mordecai essentially wears his sackcloth and ash to the community courtroom where civic business and political business is being done. He walks right to the center of where polite and powerful company was doing their business. And and we know that that's an official place because he can't go any further, right? He can go just to the gate, but no further. He can go right to the point where the message will probably get in through the gate to the king, but he dare not go to the king for it was another one of those things that was a capital punishment in Persia. Mordecai is intentionally making all who saw him uncomfortable. Protesting. Calling attention to himself. But it's not just those that see him that are uncomfortable. He makes Esther uncomfortable. Remember, if we go back to chapter 2, Esther has been trying to hide her ethnic identity. And has done so successfully for five years to this point. The the text demonstrates that they don't know that Esther is a Jew. That they don't know that Esther is connected to Mordecai. And for whatever reason, Mordecai is the one that instructed her of that. And now this edict has gone out. And Mordecai is at the gate drawing a whole bunch of unwanted attention to himself in a place where it's not really that appropriate. And Esther looks out the window. She's told what's going on. She looks and she says, what in the world are you doing? Actually, that is, that's the best translation. Look, there were three different commentaries I looked at this week, and all three of them noted that, that this is an extreme question. When she sends the servant to go, to go to Mordecai, the question is doubled and tripled down upon in one sentence. 
And, and the indication is, have you lost your mind? What are you thinking? Put on some decent clothing, man. Esther doesn't want drawn in to a political scandal. She doesn't want to be drawn into this conflict. But God had perfectly positioned Esther to try to help her people. But for Esther, doing so also would not be without risk. So Esther sends the question via her servant to Haman, or to Mordecai, excuse me, and asks, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? And he sends back word. We might say, utilizing a, a colloquial phrase, that Mordecai spills the tea. He's got all the receipts as to what's going on, and he sends the information to Esther. He provides the exact amount of money that Haman promised to pay. That was a conversation between the, the king and Haman. It means that Mordecai's got some pretty pretty powerful friends, some friends that are in the inside that know what's going on, that Mordecai reveals what Haman has paid to do, namely eradicate an entire people group, Mordecai's people group, Esther's people group. And he provides official documentation laying out the exact time, date, and place, which was everywhere. This place was to be enacted. And he commands Esther to go to the king and say something on their behalf. Now, this is an interesting fact that I'm just going to draw attention to here, and, and we won't draw attention to it later. But this is the last time in the narrative that Haman is the, or not, excuse me, that Mordecai is truly the main character. Yes, he'll be honored here in a, in a little bit, but ultimately from here on out, Esther is no longer a plaything or a secondary character. So why the book is named Esther and not Mordecai. She becomes the primary central figure. And after this moment, this is the last time time that Haman or that Mordecai gives Esther, I keep doing that, that Mordecai gives Esther instructions. From here on out, Esther will be giving the commands. The girl is in charge. But he commands her, go to the king and say something on our behalf. Now this is an exceedingly bad idea for Esther for at least three reasons. The odds are not in her favor. Why do I say that? Well, first, it's illegal for anyone to go to the king unannounced without a request, an invitation. With one clear result for disobeying that said law. Only seven princes of Persia were able to stand before the face of the king, as it says. Seven people had immediate and unhindered access to the king. And that was only at the beginning. By the time we get here, it's just Haman. We only see one counselor that has immediate, unhindered access to the king. Esther is not one of those people. And what's the one command? What is the one thing that is to happen should someone wander into the king's court unannounced? Death. Now, we talked about in the first week that Persians made a lot of their important decisions while drunk. Someone needed to take away the booze. 
because they had terrible legislation. You wear the wrong outfit and you step into the palace gate, off with his head. You come into the king and happen to see him without being announced, off with his head. Like everything results in someone dying. Not a good way to grow your kingdom. But it doesn't look good for Esther. She'd be taking a risk by going on. If he decided he didn't want to see her, she dies. And it's only if he extends the scepter and demonstrates grace to her that she is invited in. Second, it would cause Esther to at least passively reveal her identity. By going in there, Esther is going to connect herself to these people who are in trouble. The question then becomes why? Why, Esther? Why do you care about this one little people group that's causing us trouble all over the empire? Why do you care about them so much? Now that, that added attention that Mordecai has is now on Esther. The, the task that she's had, to, the, the work she's done to hide her identity for five years all goes up in smoke. And now it lumps her in with those that are called out in the edict. She now essentially, even if the king doesn't kill her, puts herself on the chopping block for the ultimate attack that is to come. If we go back to the first thing, going to the king unannounced and hoping for his grace. If we look at the book of Esther, and this is the third thing, the king doesn't have a history of being super gracious about queens who question the rules. I mean, we can go back to chapter one. How did Esther become queen, right? Esther became queen because the king sent a really stupid rule to his other wife, Vashti, and said, hey, get naked and come walk around in your crown. And she said, I don't think so. That just makes sense. And the king says, you're not the queen anymore. And we're going to make a rule that every woman in the kingdom has to be submissive in her household. Doesn't exactly elicit or build up confidence in one's soul that the king is going to be gracious and compassionate when Esther comes sauntering in. It's a very uncomfortable situation for her, but it is clearly the right thing. I see this as being true so often in life that courageous and faithful actions are rarely convenient and comfortable. Courageous and faithful actions are rarely convenient or comfortable. I mean, I mean, if it requires courage, wouldn't that by itself indicate that this is going to be difficult? And how often in the Bible does it say, have courage, do not lose heart, for I am with you always. We shouldn't be surprised when doing the right thing doesn't feel right. It often puts us at odds with the flow of culture and society. It draws attention to us in ways that that maybe we wouldn't prefer. Martin Luther King Jr. is quoted as saying, the time is always right to do what is right. The time is always right to do what is right. And I'm going to add a, a, a little caveat to the end of that even when it feels wrong. The time is always right to do what is right, even when it feels wrong. The question that we must ask ourselves is the same question that Esther must ask herself in the text this morning and throughout the book of Esther. It is actually the 
the key question of the book of Esther, I would say, and that's this. Will we use our God-given gifts, abilities, power, privileges, and opportunities to serve ourselves or to serve others? Will we use what God makes available to benefit us or to benefit those he's put in our path? Esther had options. We see that in verses 12 through 14. She hid her Jewish identity again for five years. How hard would it have been to continue to lay low, to go with the flow, to save herself and continue living the high life in the palace in Susa? Now, Mordecai does harshly point out that there are no guarantees that the odds are really good that, that her household and the household of her father were going to die. Which is actually kind of interesting if you think about it. Because it's not as much of a threat as you would think. Why? Because we know that Esther's father and mother are already dead. So when Mordecai says, hey, listen, if you fail to step up now, your father's household is at risk of death and harm. Do you know who Mordecai is talking about? Mordecai is talking about Mordecai. He's saying, look, I took you in. I took care of you. I loved you. Do not leave me hanging. You may make it, but it's clear that I won't. Esther, please, if you ever loved me, if you ever cared about me, please, please go to the king. Please be courageous and take the steps. It's another one of those moments in the text where, where what is being said isn't necessarily what you see immediately on the face. Mordecai is once again sending a message and begging for help. Which is the second option. Esther could step out in faith, put herself and her very life on the line to try to help those in need of saving, including and most especially Mordecai. Doing what is right will not always be easy, comfortable, or convenient. It often requires us to step into the unknown with little more than hope, trusting that God will move for us and through us, but with no guarantees that that will be the case. Are we willing to sacrifice our own comfort, convenience, position, and power for the chance that God might work in and through us in amazing ways? Notice, if you look towards the end, I'm going to jump ahead and then back. At the end of the passage, Esther says, hey, look, we're all going to fast for three days, and then I'm going to do this. And if I perish, I perish. The reading of that is actually more likely, I'm probably going to die. If I die, and I'm probably going to die, then it's in God's hands. But the issue in this text extends beyond simple right action. It's about owning our true identity as God's people. Have you noticed that Esther is the only one in the book of Esther that actually has two names? Esther is the only one that lives pretty explicitly in two different worlds. 
At the beginning of Esther, before she's called in to be the queen, she is Hadassah, the adopted daughter of Mordecai, the Jewess. It's not until she's brought in to, to this whole mess with the king that she suddenly lives by, by her Persian name, Esther. Which was often the case that they would have two names, right? We see it with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That their original names had attachment to their God. That their Persian or Babylonian names had attachment to their God. In this case, Hadassah does have connection to Yahweh. To God providing and caring. Whereas Esther is a derivation of Asherah, Ishtar a goddess of fertility, but also a goddess of war, conveniently enough, because Esther does bring about life to her people, but then makes war later. But we won't go too deeply into that. But what, what identity is Esther going to assume? Is she going to, to own her identity that she's been hiding of Hadassah, the Jewess, of the people of God, the Israelite? Or is she going to hide away in her identity of Esther, queen of Persia? She's at a point where only one can define, define her. And it's a choice we all have to make from time to time as the people of God. We saw it with Mordecai last week. Will we simply bend to the will of the people and blend in with the crowd? Do our best to fade into the background? Or will we step up and stand strong with faith that God will use us as a means to bring about his plan? Matthew 6, 24, we're told by Jesus himself, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God in your own self-interest. Matthew 10, 33, it says, you can't deny God publicly and be one of his people privately. Oh my goodness, we could camp on that one all day because that is the way of the American church. Our faith is a private thing. I just want a quick caveat here and aside. If your faith is private, you're doing it wrong. Our faith in God Almighty, our, our identity as the people of God should be what defines us above and beyond all other things, beyond my identity as a Myers, beyond my identity as, as a member or a citizen of these United States of America, beyond any other identifier that I can pull, put on myself. I am first and foremost a child of God. And I should live accordingly. And we don't got to be rude about it, but we absolutely should be wearing it on our sleeve. It's even more pronounced in the New Testament than in the Old Testament, isn't it? That is actually the call for each of us, that we go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And I know that's not super popular to go into the world and tell them there is only one way, only one truth, and only one life. And it's Jesus but the Great Commission is not optional. It is, in fact, a command. And we are first and foremost to put our identity in who we are as a child of God beyond any other identifying marker. We need to be careful. Sure, there is a risk at times to stepping into the unknown and stepping out to where people haven't maybe gone before, to a place that isn't popular or a place that isn't well looked upon. But is there not also a risk in staying and playing it safe? 
Do we not risk experiencing the great plans that God has for us? Do we not risk God doing something amazing and world shifting, if not for the entirety of society, even for one people? Is it worth risking that? There's a risk either way. We just have to weigh which risk are we willing to take. Mordecai asks the question, the one passage that we all know from Esther. And again, it harkens back to Joel chapter 2. He says, who knows but that you may have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I would argue that's true for each of us. That wherever God has placed you right now in your life, whatever situations and circumstances you are facing, whoever is in your sphere of influence, that God has in fact, it's not even a question, it's a truth, that God has placed you right there in that situation, in that circumstance with those people for such a time as this. God has a purpose and a plan for you. The question for us is, are we willing to step into it? Are we willing to, to, to step out in faith and see what God does? Well, you know what you should do in the midst of that situation as you're considering what God would want you to do? We see it here. Saw it at the beginning. We're going to see it now at the end. The final response as we prepare for whatever situation should be to turn to the Lord. Once again, we are right back where we started once you've discerned and, and de decided the direction God may be leading you, you know what you need to do? Once God's revealed what you possibly should do, you keep praying. You pray some more. You continue to repent and refocus on God, asking him to guide and direct you into the uncertainty that surely lies ahead. You pray to start. You pray to finish. You pray everywhere in between. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, very succinct and short verse, pray always. God's salvation will be made available to the world. And the good news for us this morning and the good news of Esther is that God wants to use you as a vessel to carry it into the world. Will we turn to him for guidance to determine how he's asking us to serve. Will we turn for him asking for strength and help to, 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 to guide us and direct us and to hold us up through whatever we are facing in life? Will we rely on him to provide for us in the abundance of his power, the courage and strength we need to follow through? God has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. He knows the plan he has for us, and he wants to prosper us, to bring about good things, and not to destroy us. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but God has the plan. God has placed us exactly where we are for such a time as this. God's desire is that we would be in the world, but not of it, in order that we might be his conduit for his great salvation. That we would shine like stars in a dark and dreary world. 
Are we willing to step into the season and the situations that God has for us? Will we continue to refocus our attention on him, praying that he would work and move in and through us as only he can? Are we willing to take the risk for the reward of God using us beyond what we can ask and imagine? God has placed you where you are for such a time as this. May you join me in praying that God will reveal his will to us together as an entity as an organization, as First Baptist Church, but also individually wherever God places us. And may we have the strength and courage to follow him. Father God, I pray that you would work and move in our hearts and lives in accordance to your plan to bring about your purpose. Lord, I pray that you would help us to overcome the fears that are in our lives, that we would remember that you ultimately have won the victory, that you will provide for us in accordance with your grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to follow you every day. Lord, turn our hearts to you. Turn our attention to you. Remind us of the power of your shed blood and the great love that you have for us. Work in and through us in such a time as this to bring about your victory today and every day. In Jesus' name.